0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. This is the word of God. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom.
1: Let's pray. Once again, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be be before your word, and we pray that you will speak. And we also pray for your spirit to move in our hearts, that they might find fertile soil, soft hearts. And Lord, um, that these truths will sink in deep. Thank you for sharing these things with us, letting us know your mind. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So it's not often that I preach English. So... Any heresy coming out of me is to be blamed to my linguistic issues, not theological, okay? (laughs) Have you ever heard the story of a man, let's call him Jack, who was walking along a steep cliff one day and he accidentally got too loose to the edge and fell. And on the way down, he grabbed a branch, uh, which temporarily stopped his fall, but it wasn't a very sturdy branch and he couldn't get away. He looked down and saw that it was straight over the canyon, hundreds of feet below. And he couldn't hang on to the branch forever. There was no way to climb up, so he started yelling for help. Help! Help! Is anyone up there? Help! That went on for a long time. And finally, he heard a voice. Jack? Jack, can you hear me? Yes! Yes, I can hear you! I'm down here! I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? Yeah, but where are you and who are you? I'm the Lord, Jack. I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean God? That's me. Oh, God, please help me. I promise I'll get down from here and I'll stop sinning if you get me down. I'll be a really good person. I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Easy on the promises, Jack. Let's just get you down from there and then we can talk. Now, here's what I want you to do. Listen carefully. All right, right, I'll do anything, Lord. Just tell me what to do. Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. Just trust me. Let go. Help! Is anyone else out there? (laughs) Why is it so hard to believe God? To trust in him like it was for Jack. Jack. Why is it hard for all of us to trust and obey God? Well, I think there's something that goes against our fallen nature, our self-centered, instinctive survival that allows us to freely trust God. Uh, It's a trust because trusting in God is a trust that really calls us to give up ourselves. If you are a believer in Christ, you know what this means. You've experienced it. And we actually face it regularly, don't we? Time and again, we have to let go and trust God. It's unnatural in many ways, yet, as we shall see today, our survival instinct is not always right. Our fallen nature is not the final yardstick. And our way of thinking is not the right one, always. We must adopt however difficult God's way of thinking the divine logic. Lose to find. So in the previous passage, Matthew presented us Christ's confirmation of his identity, the disciple proclaiming, Peter in this particular, confirming his identity. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, the Son of God. And then Jesus reveals his church project, we can call it, um, in which he explains Uh, how he will build his assembly, his gathering. Now, Peter understood by God's grace that Jesus was the Messiah, and Peter was blessed. Peter was happy. God's smile was on him because of what he understood. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, the deliverer, the redeemer, the savior of Israel. The disciples must have felt really, really special and excited. Finally... The Messiah's here, and we are right here. We know him. And uh, they had a sense of, like, we're on the front rows. Actually, you know, we're in with Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, And Peter had this great revelation, again, of his role he was going to have, you know, importance and incredible role in God's kingdom and God's church. Yet Jesus wants them to remain quiet. Did you notice how the last passage finishes? Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And that must have been a little bit startling for the disciples. We know who you are, and now we gotta be quiet. Uh, they were a bit perplexed, probably, but nothing like what was about to come. But they were sure that Jesus was the Christ and they understood that true life was in him and he was God's savior. And this is when this passage starts, because Jesus starts to say something strange. He starts to give information that is detailed and new and kind of sinister. He says he's got to show in verse 21, "From that time, Jesus begins to show his disciple that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chiefs, priests, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised." Jesus' plan. Point one in your bulletin. Jesus' plans and Peter's rebuke. Now, Jesus starts to say his plan, and he says, now that you know I am the Messiah, I have announced you the church project, and now I'm going to announce Operation Free Israel. I, the Messiah, the liberator, the redeemer, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And all the leaders, the national authorities, the Sanhedrin, is going to get together, and they're going to order my execution, and I'm going to die. And three days later, be raised. What? I think that when Jesus said, on the third day, be raised, the disciples didn't even hear that. They were so confused by what he said. Two days by the idea of the Messiah being killed. In fact, Peter, possibly full of himself after the good things Jesus told about him, About his unique and important role in the church, felt invested with complete authority—authority to help the Master, as well the Messiah—and adjust the pitch, you know, and correct this plan he had. Verse 22: And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, "Far be it from you, Lord! This shall never happen to you." Jesus says, "Peter, you are the Messiah." the deliverer, the great leader who will save Israel. But of course, this will not happen to you. God forbid, and I guarantee he will forbid this to happen. Nobody expects it. It's totally against the concept of Messiah. And you certainly don't have to think that way. You just told us, you're the Messiah. Now, let's forget about this talk of this gloomy and dark thought. Let's get back to the talk of glory, power, and authority we were talking about before. We read this story. And we say, oh, Peter, Peter, usual Peter, always talking before thinking. But we don't often ask the questions, why did Peter say that? Why did he think that way? And I think it's instructive to ponder that a second. We need to understand the historical and religious context in which Peter was raised. First of all, there were so many prophecies, and you all know them, about the Messiah. There were biblical prophecies that spoke of delivering Israel, Psalms, prophets stated clear of glory, of power, of authority, of ruling over the earth. So it's not that Peter was believing something not biblical. The problem is he had a partial picture. Now let us recall also a concept. Israel, as we know, became a nation when they were delivered from Egypt. They were delivered from the oppression of slavery in Egypt. And the national independence was linked in their history, of course, to God's intervention, to God's salvation. And when, as a people in the promised land, they failed to obey God, they were conquered. The exile took place. And it was so intrinsically linked in their mind, their national freedom with godliness or with being with God or God being with them, that it was very natural to think that the Messiah is gonna be the deliverer from the oppression. And we remember, the Romans were not nice people. I know them, they were not nice. <laughs> um, they were not just under heavy taxes. They were you know, in trouble a lot of the time. They were not free to worship God like they wanted, and they were uh, persecuted in many instances. In many instances, the crucifixion and the power of Rome, the arrogance of Rome was very, very unbearable. And we have to remember, Israel has been suffering for hundreds of years in this state. Because when they came back from the exile, yes, they were back. Yes, they had a temple, but they had no king. It wasn't like they were hoping it would be. And the period that goes, you know, between Malachi and Matthew is a really tough period. Israel was bouncing back and forth under the dominion of foreign powers. The Syrians in the north, the Egyptians in the south, obviously before that the Persians, after that the Romans. It was a terrible time. Uh, A scholar says that the suffering of the Jews was frightening to contemplate in those terrible years. Whichever side won, they lost. Whichever side prospered, they were robbed. And you know the famous example of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian ruler, who was fighting against Egypt and Israel was in the middle. And word reached the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, that Antiochus was defeated in Egypt. And everybody was like, yeah, we're well, finally, because they like the Egyptians better. They'd rather be under the Egyptians than the Syrians, the Seleucids. And they were all happy, but there was a problem. Antichius wasn't defeated and wasn't dead and he heard about the party in Jerusalem. So he came up from Egypt and Josephus tells us that he killed in three days 40,000 Jews including women and children and took another 40,000 into slavery. Then he desecrated the temple the famous episode by raising an idol in the temple. So the Israelites cannot take it any longer and this family nicknamed the Maccabees came about and freed Israel. It was an amazing military feat, a small guerrilla operation, guerrilla, yeah? That's, that's the animal, guerrilla. <laughs> anyway, you understand. A crazy underground, grassroot operation was able to deliver uh, Israel from this big power. And they, were, they thought, yes, this is it. We've got the tempo, we got independence. But things weren't quite right, and actually this family soon became corrupt. The power, the wanting the power was corrupting to the point where they were bribing for being nominated high priest, and at the end, in their eternal struggles, they actually invited Rome to come and help them. And Rome came right in and stayed. Now, Peter was born and raised in Galilee. And Galilee was a, a hotbed for revolutionaries, or people were like wanting to be free, wanting to fight. And the Messiah was going to finish that work. They were going to get ready for the Messiah. And the Bible talks about it, ruling over the Gentiles. So when the Messiah came, Peter heard him say that he was going to die. No, 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 it doesn't make any sense. If the Messiah dies, what hope do we have? If the Messiah dies, there's nothing else left. It's absurd. He can't be right. Jesus, you know, Jesus was a bit confused. Let me correct him. And here we have the rebuke of the rebuke. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of the God, but on the things of man. Peter's response, Jesus' response was just as shocking. Satan, get behind me. Adversary, get out of the way. This is the Peter was blessed just two verses ago, three verses ago. And now he's being called Satan. You are a hindrance. You are a a snare. You're a stumbling block. And so the contrast is pretty amazing. Peter the rock, you're a stumbling rock now. Get out of my way. You are not thinking like God, you're thinking like men. You've got men's values, and that's bad. It's anti-God. You're an adversary because you think of things of man, not things of God. And God's way of thinking is quite different. There's no salvation without suffering. There's no forgiveness without payment. And as we know, no crown without a cross. And Jesus' plan was clear. He had to die to save us. Satan's temptation, Matthew 4, was now Peter's temptation, right? Try to bypass the cross. Let's get to the glory without dying. Seek glory right away without having to go go through all this. And Jesus says, don't tempt me. Because it wasn't a cakewalk, we know that. Jesus in Gethsemane prayed, if this pa- cup can pass, let it be so. So say, Jesus knew the truth, the, the strength of this temptation. But he responded with decisiveness. No, get away. Get out of my way. The way, <clears throat> the way men think is completely wrong. In fact, it's diabolical because it's influenced by the devil and subject to its power. We know that from other passages of Scripture. Just think of Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not at work in the sons of disobedience. And John, in his letter, says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If any one loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride, is not from the Father, but from the world. Desires, ways of thinking, objectives. If we think like the world, we're thinking like the enemy. And this way of thinking is the opposite of Jesus' way of thinking. And so Jesus expands this idea. And he explains... How does this divine logic work? Lose to find. We need to think upside down, he's saying. We need to think differently. And so in verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says, let's set the record straight. Okay, everybody, listen up. Did you hear what, see what just happened with Peter? Now let me explain. You must embrace God's way of thinking. And God's way of thinking really implies that you have to renounce to yourself, first of all, in your way of thinking. you got to change the way you think. And I find it amazing here how Jesus is patient, how Jesus is loving and kind and teaching truth. He's explaining the problem to Peter and the disciples of their thinking. And he's doing that for us, too. And Jesus is wonderful in his love and care for all of us because he is there also to correct us. He didn't kick Peter out. He said, forget about that keys of heaven. Give him back. He corrected him. And that's what he does with us. And changing the way of thinking, isn't it the hardest thing? I think thinking is hard to change because it's so intimate, it's so intrinsic. We see the world through our thinking. And to change that, it's, it's radical, it's painful, it's difficult. That's what Paul says to the Romans, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the renewal of your thinking, of your mind. And how do we have to change our thinking? Well, just renouncing our thinking is actually Uh, Put into practice what Jesus said. You have to deny yourself. You have to deny your desires, your goals, your achievements, your strength. It's really hard because it's really radical. But obviously it's not just a mental aspect. It implies action, taking up your cross. Now we know the cross was this hated instrument of torture and terror that Rome used to suppress, to oppress, and to instill fear in people. And associating associating the cross to the Messiah, that was definitely new. That was a different way of thinking. Taking up one's cross means being exposed to mocking, to ridicule, to insults, to be abused by society. These are the requirements of Jesus. Renunciation and willingness to suffer, if necessary, to die. To be despised by all but Christ. But why? Why do we have to change this way of thinking? Why do we have to renounce ourselves? What's so wrong with our thinking? Now, Jesus gives us three reasons. There's three fours coming up in the next three verses. And the first one, I believe, is the heart of the passage. And it's the explanation of this principle. We could call it the fundamental principle of divine logic. You've got to lose to find. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To follow Jesus and have true life we must lose our self-centered life we must lose what we hold dear it's like unwrapping a gift you know we say the gospel is like a gift you just got to unwrap it with faith the problem is that we're holding something else in our hands our desires our goals our idols and in order to get that package we got to let go we can't have both and that letting go It's like dying. Letting go of yourself to find yourself. It's counterintuitive, but it's crucial. It's kind of like the basic principle of falling asleep. If you wanna fall asleep, don't think about falling asleep. You're not gonna fall asleep if you do that. So if you wanna think about saving your life, don't have to think about your life. You shouldn't. Let's go a little bit deeper. The question is the center of gravity. We are centered on something, and usually that something is us. <laughs> we are our son, and everything in life revolves around us. If God is at the center of our life, we revolve around him. We are centered around him. And I've discovered, and everything moves around it like a dance. And I discovered this years ago by reading The Reason of God, for God of Tim Keller, that the church fathers call this perichoresis. It's like a dance around, flowing around. And it's referred in first analysis to the Trinity. Because if we are to think like God, it's helpful to understand how God is, because we're made in his image. And this concept is not perfect in all respects, but it captures the essence. And this is what Keller says. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutual self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter in a dynamic orbit around him or her, we center on the interests and desires of the other. That creates a dance, particularly if there are th- three persons. Each of one moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles them, the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, and defers to eat and rejoices in the others. This creates creates a pulsating, dynamic dance of joy and love. So God created us in His image. He created us to give, to be selfless, to be centered on others, God first and foremost, than other people, and not on ourselves. And if we put ourselves at the center, if we want to take and not give, we're on the road of death because we go against our real nature. We go against God's plans the way God intended the universe to work. And we say to God, God, I'll take care of it. Go away. i will glad to give you up. So we're destined for self-destruction. And then the righteous judgment of God who condemns us for hijacking our true identity. His creatures dependent on him, made to love him, and our goal, renouncing our goal to love those around us. So Keller says another thing. When Jesus says you must lose yourself in service to find yourself he was recounting what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been doing throughout eternity. You then will never get a sense of self by standing still, as it were, and making everything revolve around your needs and interests. Unless you're willing to experience the loss of options and the individual limitations that comes from being committed in a committed relationship, you will remain out of touch with your own nature and the nature of things. Therefore, we're not talking about losing our life in a kind of suicide, but out of love for Christ, who gave up his life for us, we entrust our lives to him. We let ourselves go in his hands according to this truth. It's kind of emotionally and psychologically like dying at times. You kind of have that feeling you're at the end of the rope and you don't know what's next. But isn't that the glorious moment too at the same time? Because you know, if you experience, you know that what's coming next. And every time it gets you, it's a struggle at times. Uh, you're like, okay, I'm dying. I'm almost dead. I'm not quite dead. And it can be a long, drawn-out process. But obviously, we can't focus on ourselves. We've got to keep looking to Jesus, what he's calling us to do, and the fact that giving up our life to him, we will find it deeper, more full, more real, and it happens the first time when we come to faith in Christ. It's a definitive moment, of course, important moment, decisive moment. But as Luke says, you have to take up your cross daily. It's not a once and for all. It's a first moment, and then you got to keep doing it. Keep being freed by giving up your life. And Jesus explains this divine logic, losing to find, as his first reason, but then he gives a second reason. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? We're talking about the most important thing, our soul, our inner being. The most essential parts of who we are. What gain will a man have if he saves everything, if he gains power, health, money, success, fame, honor, If I'm not wrong, this is exactly what our society is going for. What will it do if you lose the center of everything? Your soul. It won't do you any good. And the corollary to our divine principle is you cannot pay for your soul. There is no bargaining that holds. Soul issues are resolved at soul level. Not any other thing. There's a psalm that says something similar talking about saving somebody else. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Psalm 49, 7 and 8. You can't do it. You can't save somebody else. You can't save yourself. And that's where all this comes into. You cannot pay for your soul. You've got to solve your soul issues at a level, of a soul level. So take care of your soul. Watch out for your soul. And the third reason, verse 27, that Jesus gives why it's important to deny yourself is that the Son of Man is coming, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person accordingly to what he has done. Jesus is saying you can be sure that the final bill will come when you'll be in front of the judge on the final day of reckoning. That will be the time when the Messiah will be mighty and magnificent. The Son of Man coming in glory is referring to Daniel, this image of of the Messiah, the Son of Man coming in power, governing, in glory. Yes, that will be the moment he will shine. It will be a time of deliverance for sure from evil, all judgment on the wicked, the adversary and the adversaries are gonna be judged. But beware though, if we don't adopt God's way of thinking, we will be on the wrong side. The Messiah will come and it will be too late. The response we will have when the Messiah comes depends on us really, depends on our attitude towards God, towards the Messiah himself. Uh, There's a psalm which kind of explains this in the first three verses, Psalm 68. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Same episode, huge difference in response. The Messiah will come in glory and he will be there to judge, to reveal himself clearly and to repay each person according to what he has done. Now, when we read this according to what he has done, we're thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by faith, not by works. Well, that's obviously very true. And the scripture is very clear about this. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That would go against The basic principle of salvation we found in scripture and in this passage, too. But what he's saying is that our actions speak about what we believe. Our actions say where our heart is. If you say you believe in Jesus and you don't deny yourself, you don't take your cross and don't follow him, you can say whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want. It's not happening. And so the actions are an indicator of our state, our spiritual state. And so the question, obviously, comes forward right away. Have you renounced yourself? Have you taken up the cross, and have you followed Jesus? What will your life speak, say about your heart, your soul, when God comes and judges and repays? Well, The answer is that we should take Jesus' word seriously and deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Change our way of thinking, adopt his logic. Realize that losing to find is the way to find life, truly find life. What does this mean in practice? How does this play out? Well, I thought about how to illustrate this divine logic and I thought I'll share a little bit of my experience because I've lived this truth and I'm still living it. Um, As you know, I'm a a missionary kid. Most of you know that. I grew up in Italy as a missionary kid. And so I do not remember the first time I heard the gospel. Probably I was still in my mom's womb. And um, I believed in Jesus. Uh, At the age of 15, I was baptized. And this already implied some renunciations. It was clear that I had to renounce to some things that the world offered I was playing soccer and when I got baptized, we moved to another town and they played on Sunday mornings and I decided, you know what, I'll, I just won't play soccer anymore because I think church is more important. And it was a good idea, a good, a good uh, um, resolution uh, because by the way, in that time I didn't have, there wasn't a youth group, it was me, my brother, and my sister. So often on weekends we'd go to visit our friends from camp and so I wasn't tied to a soccer team. I could go around and and visit and go to church with my friends, and that was very important. But this losing to find was really only the beginning. Um, For a variety of reasons, I started imploding and focusing on myself. Uh, Part of it is just growing and maturing as a person. Part of it is just realizing God's work, showing the, the crooked nature inside of me. And although I desired to follow Christ and obey Him, I didn't fully understand His word and fully trust it. I was trying to save my life. And I was losing it. I wanted to be in control. I was studying at that point in college. And it was kind of my anchor. But I knew that something was not right. My, first of all, my spiritual life was not doing well. But also my relationalness, physical life, was suffering. And deep down, I, I was frustrated, sad, and depressed. But by God's grace, through time, I understood I had to change. And that change was felt like dying. I'd say, no, i got to change. This is not good. i got to start over. i got to lose my certainties that I m- try to create because they're not working and because, obviously, the Lord is good in showing that to me. What if I fail the exam? What if everybody thinks I'm a loser? How do I, what everybody knows what's going on in my heart, my difficulties, my fears? What if I trust, but then God does not, God does not take care of me? And one of the turning points was God loves you. God cares for you. He loves you in Jesus. He died for you. If there's one thing you can be sure in life, that God loves you. He showed it on the cross. And that kind of set the stage of, okay, I can trust him now. And again, in an experience kind of like dying, I was like, Lord, let's start over. Here's my life. And it's amazing how the Lord made me breathe again. I felt like I was spiritually breathing again, and physically breathing almost. And my life took a turn. Fear, anxiety gave away to joy and peace. And I would like to say that that's the end of the story, but it's not, because this kind of cycle happened more than once. Sometimes when went more smoothly, a more spiritual aware was going on. Other times it was kind of tragic. But the good news is God never let me go and that I was able, by His grace, to lose again my life, to find it, to deny myself and to find life in Him. And again, it's a process. I think it will only end when we'll be in His presence. And so uh, Tim Keller, another book, wrote and said... The sign of spiritual maturity is not having, not having to go to, through this process. is having to go through this process and handling better every time. Realizing what's going on, trusting more simply, directly, more faithfully. And you will find your life. You will find life here, and you will find a deeper connection with God, a deeper reality with God. And one day like we sang, we'll finally fully realize it without constraints, the life in Christ. And we will renounce ourselves freely, totally, because we will be centered on God and dancing around Him. And that's true life. And thank God we can start now. We get glimpses, glimmers at times more clearly of glorious reality this is. And Jesus closes his passage in verse 28 saying, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The promise of Messiah's glory is there. So Jesus is not telling Peter, Peter, what glory? There's no glory. There's only suffering here. No, the glory will come. And you will actually see, some of you will see it. But it goes through Suffering. Now, what exactly is he talking about with this? Some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And scholars and exegetes debate on this. What is exactly is he talking about? Well, one option is you just keep reading, and Jesus is transfigured next episode. And only three of them see it. Huh? Is he coming in his kingdom? Well, they see Jesus in his glory. If, that's pretty pretty significant. And that's a possibility. The problem is that the way Jesus talks in verse 28, it seems he's talking about something a little bit longer in time because, you know, it was six days later. Everybody was still alive. So it's a bit difficult to understand. It. Somebody says it's the resurrection. Well, Jesus in glory, they resurrected Jesus. That's pretty glorious. And it's a significant event. Not everybody saw it. But from what we know beside Judas, all of them saw that. So is that what he's talking about? Possibly. Others think it's a coming of the spirit and the growth and the being of the church. The kingdom of God coming in power by the salvation, spreading to the nations. And that's also another good possibility. There's another one, which is a bit more counterintuitive, but intriguing. And somebody says it's the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Like what, how's that glory? Well, that's Jesus coming and glorying judging Israel to some extent, and so in a way, not everybody saw that, and so that makes more sense. So which of these four options should we prefer? Well, honestly, I don't quite know. (laughs) I think my hunch is that this is kind of one of those prophecies that you kind of see a glimpse, and then there's another step, there's another step, and slowly you get the big picture. And so in a way, the transfiguration, yes, Jesus in glory, the resurrection for sure, the Holy Spirit in the church, and even the destruction of the temple are all somewhat projecting forward to what's going on. They're kind of like partial fulfillments. But either way, either way we take this. This is a message of hope. It's a message that the light at the end of the tunnel is there. Yes, it's going to be dying, denying yourself, dying to yourself. This, This Messiah is going to... Die, but he's gonna raise again. And he will come in glory, and you will see it. So that gives a very strong message of hope. That it's not all done. There is this glory coming. Although it has to come through the cross. So to follow Jesus Christ and find true life, we must lose our self-centered life. I wanna tell you one last story in closing. A story I learned as a child, and it spoke to me several times in his life. It's a story it was about a monkey in Africa, and this monkey was curious and sneaky and repeatedly stole from this family and uh, living in, you know, in the savannah, I guess. And uh, the dad of the family got quite tired of this sneaky monkey, and he said, this is it. we got to get rid of this monkey. So he prepared something, and the monkey obviously wasn't was clever, but not enough. And one day this monkey smells this wonderful peanuts coming from a barrel, like an oil barrel, which has a very tiny hole at top. And so the monkey smells it, ooh, and goes in, ooh, there's a barrel right in the middle of the room. So he goes in there and sticks his hand and reaches the peanuts. Now the hole was very small, so the hand barely got through. He got the peanuts, and the hand was stuck. And he couldn't get it out, and he tried and tried to get out his hand with his peanuts. And he couldn't, and then he hears the steps of the father of the family coming. And that was the end of the monkey. What peanuts are you clinging to? Are they really worth it? Are they worth your soul? What desire drives you and is entrapping you that you can't give up, you won't give up? Don't be foolish, let it go. Let those desires go. Renounce. Lose to find true life. There's nothing you can give in exchange for your soul. So have you lost your life? Have you had the experience of this losing of life to finding it? We call it conversion, new birth. There's many different ways to describe it. Are you found in Christ after losing yourself? Are you willing to be rejected by your friends, losing your friends, losing your career? Are you willing to find Jesus if it means losing your reputation, losing your life? I hope you are. And I would challenge you to do so. It's the only way to real life. And if you are a believer, are you still losing your life? Are you dancing around God? Are you standing and waiting everybody to come? You know, we've all met people that are very absorbing. Everything has got to be for them and they're always getting, getting. Uh, Well, let's not judge too quickly and let's make sure we are losing our life in Christ so that we can give and so we won't be done with this I already said it until we'll be with Jesus so the process is going to go over and over again the encouraging thing is every time we go over it we get more taste of what how glorious it is to find life in Jesus and so Jesus at the end turns out to be more glorious he's delivering us from ourselves and he's the hero and the savior of this story He's teaching us how to taste him, how to know him. And I want to pray now that we can experience this for the first time or for the hundredth time and that Jesus will be glorified in us. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your words. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. And thank you, Lord, that... We have life in you, and Lord, we're so sinners and crooked and twisted in our thinking, but thank you that you're patient, and you reveal your truth, and we can stand in your truth. And thank you for your grace, Lord, because all of this is your doing, and the only thing we need to do is accept it, and we got to let go of what's not right and just accept what you've already provided. So I pray, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who hasn't found this life, I pray that they will experience it, surrender to you. And Lord, I pray for all of us that have found this life. Oh Lord, we don't want to stop this difficult but marvelous cycle of losing to find. And I pray that we can once again taste you, know you, Glorify you by denying ourselves, taking our cross, and following you. For your glory, Jesus, we pray. Amen.